From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Can you design a school that protects kids from shootings but still makes them feel comfortable? Yeah, there's no reason why a safe school won't also be a school that is uplifting, that is enlivening. As a debate rages over whether to tear down Columbine High School and rebuild, we'll speak with the architect behind the new Sandy Hook. They rebuilt that elementary school after 26 people died in a shooting there. Then in the 1950s, thousands of Koreans were adopted by families worldwide. It left children feeling out of place. The way I like to describe it is that I grew up feeling like a Martian. A project in Colorado helps these adoptees, now adults, address issues of abandonment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. School officials in Jefferson County announced last week they may tear down Columbine High School and build a new one. In the 20 years since the shooting took place there, experts have put a lot of thought into how to design safer buildings. After the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, the old school was demolished. Julia McFadden designed the building that replaced it. And Julia, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. We want to strike a balance here between helping the public understand improvements in school safety and at the same time not compromising safety by giving away too much. So with that in mind, generally, what were the considerations you took into account when you designed the new Sandy Hook? Well, certainly the Sandy Hook event really did start a different conversation about school safety. And we were fortunate to work with the state of Connecticut as they were developing some new guidelines. And what we implemented were very simple. And it's looking at the site, really understanding how people are coming onto a school campus and creating uh, the ability for what's called natural surveillance, Mm -hmm. which is to see people clearly from the front entry of the school, from the school administration office, uh, creating more and more levels of delay to assess a situation and then buy enough time to also then react to a situation. So that could be anything from an intercom interface at the vehicle drive-in to the site and then having a very secure front entry where, again, you have to be buzzed in. You're in a locked vestibule where you would need to check in and show your credentials and be apprehended before you move further into the school. Would you limit the number of entrances? That's one thing I would imagine you try to do in a new design. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The more entrances that you have to monitor either manpower or in other ways tax you. So one main entry where you have that locked entry is where all the guests should come. Um, You may have a couple of other quote, entries that get used for special occasions. It doesn't mean you don't have multiple exits, which are are needed for getting out of a building in a fire emergency or other types of emergency, but we're talking about the entries where you have to show your credentials. What made the community in Newtown decide the school should be torn down? 
Well, there were multiple factors, and I think that's the key. I don't think there's a, if an event happens, you would automatically tear down the school. And they went through a process of looking at some other sites in town. They did look at, you know, whether the school they had could be renovated or whether they should tear down. And so the factors were, was the building still meeting the needs of kind of 21st century learning? What age was the building in terms of its ability to kind of keep running, um, its energy efficiency? One of the critical things that brought them back to saying we're going to rebuild on the same site was that this school site had been there for over 50 years. The original Red Schoolhouse was still in operation as a little commercial building next to the site. So the community was very much committed to this particular site. The little Sandy Hook downtown was just a few blocks away. And if they were to have moved the school, that really would have in some ways, you know, pulled the heart out of that community. I imagine you may want to tear it down because of awful memories of the event, um, not just because of those other factors. Yeah, you, you might, but you might not do that if those other factors didn't also lean in that direction. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't think that that would be the only reason that you would uh, take the step of tearing it down. And what we did for this site was to change the experience with the way that the site was laid out and having a very different entry onto the site. Is it possible to ensure safety and still make schools feel airy and comfortable? Yeah, there's no reason why a safe school won't also be a a school that is uplifting, is attends, in fact, to the other health and welfare needs that children have for learning, which is daylight-filled and is enlivening in, in many other ways. So it's important that um, that there's a consideration to integrating the safety and security with those other aspects of school design. What are your thoughts about the idea of rebuilding Columbine High School? I don't know the specifics in the, in the situation, but I would think that similar to Sandy Hook, that there would be an analysis of of the opportunities that could be had in, in a new school. And if it's already been 20 years since the incident and the school was already in operation, I don't know how many years. It's a, a school building that's aged and probably might be nearing its useful life in terms of the technology and the energy efficiency and those aspects. So it becomes then an opportunity to rebuild, to address both safety and the perhaps still psychological needs that the community has to commemorate the incident. I guess that Sandy Hook might not have been able to predict this, but one of the issues with Columbine is that you have curiosity seekers and potential people who might want to do evil coming to look at the school. So I imagine that could be a factor, too. Yes. For the town of Newtown, that uh, the Sandy Hook neighborhood and that school, the decision was made not to have a memorial on the school site, that the school was going to be a school, and that the memorial was to be built at a different site in town. You know, the memorial was important, but the school, uh, functioning as a school was important, and not having it be hampered by gawkers and visitors that might be coming to the school. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
Architect Julia McFadden designed the school that replaced the old Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, where 26 people were murdered in 2012, including 20 children. We spoke as the Jefferson County School District considers tearing down Columbine High School. We got reaction from the Columbine community about that, and it's mixed. You can read or listen to the story at CPR.org. It seemed like a win-win for couples around the world who wanted to adopt children and for South Korean children who needed a family. But some of those children have painful memories of being separated from their lives in Korea. The moment that I kind of knew something was going to happen was the time my grandmother took me to the train station with my brother. And, you know, there was a stranger there. She handed us off to, to him, and uh, we went off on the train with a stranger. That's one of dozens of interviews with South Korean children, now adults, who were adopted into families in the U.S. and other countries like Australia and Sweden. The project is the brainchild of Glenn Morey of Denver. He, too, was adopted from South Korea, and he's created a website with video profiles of the people he interviewed around the world. Glenn, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks. I'd like to start with your experience. You were adopted by a family in 1960 when you were six months old. What is it about your own experience that made you want to do this project? Well, we we all need stories to make sense of our lives. You know, I mean, you, you need to know why you're short or why you're tall, why you have the eyes that you have. And, and uh, I grew up without that. And as a result, the older I got, the more I became um, very curious about where I'd come from and what my place was in the world and how I ended up where where I was, which was Littleton, Colorado. And and this project and, and meeting other adoptees, uh, that was the my connection to all of that. These adoptions were mainly between the 1950s and 2010. Why did they start in the first place? Well, after the Korean War, there were some 2 million children who had been uh, displaced from their families of origin somehow. And uh, many of those children were of mixed race. They were part Korean, but they were also uh, the product of, of soldiers from the U.S. and from Europe as well. And uh, uh, those children were destined to have a very, very difficult time in Korea. And Korea was indeed looking for a solution for these children. And inter-country adoption was that solution. Uh, It was their uh, way to remove these children from the country, uh, something that that, uh, the receiving countries, of course, felt some responsibility for as well. There was a lot of racism in South Korea, and that's why folks wanted to adopt them out. Is that part of it? Yeah. These these children, and we interviewed a number of them uh, because many of them were adopted as older children. They recall uh, the taunting and the teasing and the even violence toward them uh, and knowing that they were always going to experience that in Korea. And so for many of them, leaving Korea was absolutely, even consciously for them as children, uh, the best possible thing for them. 
You say these Korean adoptions set the stage for other adoptions from Asia and elsewhere during that time. What made other countries follow South Korea's lead? Well, I think that uh, there's always a need. Uh, families who who want children but can't have children of their own. And I think domestic adoption in many countries is difficult and time-consuming, long waiting lists, etc. Uh, at that time, adopting from another country was certainly a more uh, expeditious kind of way to form a family uh, for those families. And, and I think that uh, uh, it was also seen and certainly positioned in the media as an act of humanitarian rescue. Mm. Uh, there was a picture created by the media of these children, and this was in many cases a true picture, of these children and babies in orphanages and in, in dire need of, of a home and, and certainly at risk uh, in those orphanages. In fact, the orphanage that I came out of uh, in, near Seoul, Korea, had a 25% mortality rate. And so it, it's not unreasonable for me to think that my adoption potentially saved my life. Many of the adults you interviewed who were adopted as kids have memories of leaving their families. Let's listen to more of the story we heard in the introduction. The man we heard from remembers leaving his grandmother after she handed him over to a stranger. He says he knew at the time he was just being given away. Of course I was scared. We were both crying. And, you know, the one of the last things that my grandmother said was, hey, you know, when you grow up, come visit me. And uh, that is, is very, very distinct. And uh, it, it, it makes me emotional to, to talk about it. And a lot of the reason uh, folks were in orphanages were, were poverty, was poverty in South Korea at the time and war, Right. Poverty, war, uh, disrupted families, uh, meaning divorce. Uh, um, there were many, many reasons. Uh, uh, certainly the shame of, of, of unmarried mothers contributed greatly, mm. particularly during those times, uh, uh, the early 60s and, and even into the 70s. Uh, disruption of family, I think, was uh, along with poverty – contributed the most. We'll talk in a bit about those who go back to visit South Korea. Some, like this man, knew their biological families. A lot were in orphanages. Um, and I guess you don't have any memories from South Korea. You were six months old when you were adopted. But for all of you, you must be intensely curious about what happened and why you were adopted. How many knew just bits and pieces of their stories, say, from adoptive parents? Well, first of all, many of us were adopted as infants, and so we don't have memories. Um, but there are these files that our our adoptive parents typically had in their possession, and and these files contained information both from the orphanage as well as from the agency, and and typically, as the adopted child grew older, the parents would share that information and make that available. Uh, and and then when the adopted child becomes an adult, it's it's very common for then that adult to take that information and try to expand upon it 
by contacting the agency and the orphanage and maybe even going in search of their family of origin, their birth family. Um, so <clears throat> it's uh, – but it's not uncommon uh, to be uh, completely without any information. I have a file but there's really nothing in it that could help me um, determine the story of my origin. Um, there was no note attached to me. There was no information attached to me at all. Uh, I was simply abandoned in Seoul uh, and left to be processed through City Hall to what orphanage could, whatever orphanage could take me in. One of the issues you talk a lot about is race. Many of the adoptive families, I think most were white. And while today parents might have talked to their adopted children about these racial differences, it was a different time when these adoptions started decades ago. Here's a clip from one of the folks you interviewed. My twin brother and I were adopted to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We grew up there our entire childhood. Our adoptive father was Norwegian-American, and our adoptive mother was German-American. And, of course, this was in the 1960s and early 1970s in, in Milwaukee. So it was a long time ago. There was virtually no consciousness around race. Um, the way I like to describe it is that, basically, I grew up uh, feeling like a Martian who had arrived from outer space in a spaceship. And years later, uh, when I met other adoptees, it was like uh, happening upon a convention of Martians and spaceships. How often did you hear this, that these kids felt like they really stood out because of their race? Well, this was almost an entirely, uh, uh, an entirely typical story uh, that we heard um, most adoptees were adopted into families that were that were white, uh, so transracially adopted. Most were adopted into communities that were predominantly or entirely white, uh, and in many cases uh, rural. So this is not uncommon. And 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 while I wish I could say that this story was limited, this kind of story that this, that this man talked about was limited to those of us who were adopted maybe during the 60s or even the 70s. It's really not the case. Uh, my experience after talking to these people, having interviewed people born all the way from the 50s to the 90s, um, was that this story barely changed. And I think the biggest reason it didn't change is is that there are attitudes about race in our society, uh, and and maybe it's limited to the U.S., but it doesn't seem to be, according to our interviews. There are attitudes that that per, that uh, continue to today, like um, race isn't important. We're all colorblind. We we I don't see you as Korean. Uh, I don't see you as being a, of a different race, which might sound in some way socially right, but the truth is that these adopted children often took this information to mean that nobody wanted to talk about their race, that in fact they weren't supposed to talk about their race, and that to acknowledge race even was somehow 
wrong or shameful even. And so from a very early age, many, many adoptees have learned, transracial adoptees learn to not talk about this with their parents and with other people. And so they go through this same process that the man from Chicago went through where where they are required to learn how to be the race that they are by themselves in isolation. And they do that by studying other ethnic groups many times, uh, perhaps African-American uh, groups where they're able to learn the language of being racial and what it means to be something other than white, what it means to be something other than privileged. And, and I think that almost everyone we talked to described such a process, no matter what era they were adopted in. Was this all negative? How much appreciation did the folks you interviewed feel for their adoptive families? Uh, certainly some of them were in loving homes, a lot of them perhaps. Well, actually, most of the people we talked to were raised in loving homes. Um, but that's not the determining factor on how people feel about their origins. So you can be happy about your upbringing and where you are today in life and still be sad about the fact that your origin is either a black hole of information or your origin is somehow disturbing. People who found out that they were products of very violent situations or products of, of very uh, 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 situations that, that might have even resulted in their not even being on the planet. Um, so, so it's possible, I believe, to be a happy person grateful person, thankful person for your circumstances, but at the same time to have very, very complicated feelings about the way that you came into the world. Glenn Morey spent years interviewing adults adopted from South Korea as children. We spoke with him earlier this year. His project is called Side by Side, Out of a South Korean Orphanage and Into the World. You can find the video profiles and more information at CPR.org. America's national parks were born out of concern that breathtaking landscapes would be overtaken by development. A new children's book crisscrosses the parks from Yosemite to the Everglades. It includes maps and colorful illustrations of the flora and fauna. Author Kate Sieber lives in Durango. Hi, Kate. Hi, Andrea. This book has the look of a classic hardback children's book from the 1950s or 60s, I think. And there's an illustration on the cover of a dad and daughter looking out at a mountain view at one of the nation's parks. And at the very beginning, you talk about how national parks got started. What prompted the idea? So as uh, the West was getting more developed in the 1800s, people started to worry that some of the most majestic landscapes would be overtaken with houses and people. And so they started to think that it would be a good idea to set some land aside. But it wasn't until 1872 that Congress and Ulysses S. Grant uh, set aside Yellowstone. 
Um, the funny thing is, is that they designated this park but allocated no funding. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, which was a problem. So as you can imagine, with no rangers and no uh, superintendent, people came and fished out the streams and uh, shot the wildlife and even took home geyser rock as souvenirs. So the army came in to actually protect the animals. And eventually other parks were born and the park service itself was born. And now there are 61 national parks across the country. You start with parks in the eastern U.S. You move west. Um, In the east, you feature parks in the north like Acadia and Maine down to the Everglades in Florida. And I love the contrast between the cold waters of New England and the swampy waterlands of the South. Also in the East, you have a section on the Great Smoky Mountains. That's apparently the most popular national park in the country. What is it about the Smokies that attracts so many people? I think part of it is that it's just close to some big uh, population centers, and so it's one of the more accessible parks. But, of course, it has incredible wonders in it. Um, It's known for its sort of bluish fog that sort of moves around the mountains. Um, It has tons of bears. It has more than 30 species of salamanders. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite parts of that park is the synchronous fireflies, so the lightning bugs that in May and June light up the forest and flashes all together. That must be beautiful. People come from all over to see it. Yeah. More than 11 million people visited the Great Smoky Mountains uh, last year, the national park, and that's nearly twice the number that visited the second most popular park, the Grand Canyon. The first national park, as you said, was Yellowstone. The book has illustrations of the animals in the park, grizzly bears, elk, and lynx, also the plants and trees found there. But you also focus on the park's unique geothermal features. Talk about those. They're so endlessly fascinating for kids um, and adults, too. Indeed. When I visited, I met some people who were camped out in lawn chairs waiting for the more rare geysers to erupt, and they called themselves uh, geyser gazers. Uh Try to say that three times (laughs) fast. (laughs) Yeah, there are more than 10,000 geothermal features in Yellowstone. Um, So there are geysers, there are mud pots, there are these springs that have rainbow hues from the heat-loving bacteria in them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just an incredible array. And I think as far as geysers, there's something so compelling about, you know, not knowing when they might erupt. You know, of course, there are some that, like Old Faithful, that we know when they're going to erupt. And there are, there are others that don't erupt in decades. And it's just so fun to think that you could be lucky enough to see them. You live in Durango and have a national park right near you, Mesa Verde. It's one of the parks you feature in the book um, with its incredible cliff dwellings where people lived uh, centuries ago. I think much of the park's appeal is that you can really imagine how people lived when you visit it. For those who haven't been there, talk about the uniqueness of Mesa Verde. So first of all, when you're driving there, it's incredibly beautiful. Just wind up onto this mesa and to to just see the land around you. It feels like a little kingdom in a sense. And when you're walking through these ancient stone ruins, I mean, it is not at all hard to imagine what life might have been like there. You can see half-eaten corn cobs lying in the sand. You can see the charcoal from the fires that went out centuries ago. Um, you can see the pot shards that still remain. And, you know, for me, I think it makes it feel like you're closer to these people. And even if they aren't your direct ancestors, you know, it feels like in a sense that you're connected to their humanity. 
We should say that you worked on the book with an illustrator, Chris Turnham. You'd never met him, and the illustrations are just beautiful. What was one of the most surprising things you learned while you were working on this book? Um, I think some of the surprising things that I learned had to do with what plants and animals do to survive. One of the most fun things I learned was um, the shorthorned lizard, which lives in the American Southwest. In order to defend itself against predators, it can uh, double its size, puff up. It can change colors and shoot blood out of its eyes. Wow. (laughs) So you haven't been to all of the country's uh, national parks, but you've been to a lot of them. Do you have a favorite one? You know, Grand Canyon holds a special place in my heart. Um, There are so many amazing parks, but I just feel such a connection to that one. And, you know, it's so beautiful and the terrain is so terrifying to navigate in certain ways, both the river and also on foot. Um, And that elixir, it just creates this sense of awe. Kate, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Kate Sieber of Durango has written National Parks of the USA with illustrations by Chris Turnham. Sieber also reports for Outside Magazine. We spoke in March. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.